Is sitting one day with Wild Mountain Gorillas at the top of your bucket list? Then imagine that bucket being filled with over 30 years of those magical days. Welcome to Talking Apes. No one in the world has spent more time sitting in the rainforests of Africa with our wild, gentle giant cousins than my next guest, Dr. Martha Robbins. Dr. Robbins is a research primatologist and conservationist. And for the last 20 years, she's been based out of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. Her specialty, gorillas. She has spent over a quarter century, over half her life, studying gorillas, both mountain and western lowland gorillas. Since 1998, she has directed the second longest running mountain gorilla research project in the world, in Uganda's Bowindi Impenetrable National Park. Seven years later, she began research on western lowland gorillas in Luango National Park in Gabon. Her work focuses on the evolution of sociality, exploring how feeding behavior and ecology influence reproduction strategies and social behavior. I'm your host, Jerry Ellis, and you're listening to Talking Apes, where we explore the world of apes with experts, conservationists, and passionate primate lovers from around the world. Talking Apes is a podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you to Globio at globio.org. This segment of Talking Apes was originally recorded as a live Facebook event on September 24th, 2020, World Gorilla Day. It was the night before Dr. Robbins was about to leave for Gabon and renew her work on studying western lowland gorillas in Luango National Park. I started out at the Karasoki Research Center um, where Diane Fossey, which Diane Fossey set up. Um, I started there in the early 90s. And then I have two long-term field sites now. One, one is in Bwindi Impenetrable National Park in Uganda. That's been running since 1998. And then another one with Western gorillas in Gabon that has been going since 2005. Um, so yeah, yeah, happy World Gorilla Day to everybody. Uh, every day is a bit of a gorilla day for me, but. <laughs> let's, let's start kind of from the beginning. I, you know, I was, I was looking at uh, once, just going through some of the stuff in your book, which it's among African apes, if any of you are, are interested. It's, um, by Martha Robbins and Christophe Bosch. And right in the very beginning, you sort of say the who, what, when, where, why of gorillas. But give us the who, what, when, where, why of, of Martha Robbins. How um, did you, like, why gorillas? Why did you get started with gorillas? I kind of fell into gorillas per se. Um, when I was in college, when I was at university, I took an animal behavior class and I was fascinated by animals that lived in social groups. I just, the idea of animals, you know, you have individual animals, but they, they live together as a group, they interact, they cooperate, they have conflicts. And that really um, just struck me somehow. And primates are the obvious choice for that. Um, and then volunteer at Karasoki as a research assistant and got incredibly lucky, got chosen to go. And then, yeah, here we are. <laughs> 30, 30 years later, I'm going back to Africa tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it, that mountain gorillas are the ones that most people think about when they think about gorillas. But yet 
the most viewed gorillas in the world are actually Western lowland gorillas, which are the ones that are in zoos around the planet. So millions of people have seen Western lowlands, but in captivity. And yet most people think of mountain gorillas. So, and Karasoki, of course, with Diane Fossey being the, the site that most people think of. And yet to get there, like you, you, as you said, you kind of lucked into, I doubt it was luck. And I'm sure you were an amazing uh, student and they, they looked at the, they looked at the opportunity to have you as a great one, but the chance to get to go there, I mean, that's got to be everybody's dream is to get to go sit. And especially in those days, I know because I, I first started up there in the early nineties and, you know, the researchers could sit for hours with the gorillas, not like now. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it was, it was, and, and uh, even now sitting with gorillas is very special. One very strong memory I have from when I started was um, I had been at Karasoki for a month and I, I went into Diane Fossey's old house and there were these old poster boards of photographs of the gorillas and it was the same gorillas that I was going and watching every day, but they were 10 years younger. So mm -hmm. the, for example, there was Ziz, a photo of Ziz when he was 16, when he was six years old. And he was the dominant silverback of a, a group of 30 at the time. And, and that really, um, I think that really hit me in terms of uh, just how long lived they are. And, and again, just how social they are. Um, and so, yeah, maybe it sounds a bit funny that looking at small photos had such an impact. Um, but I, I think that that brings home something that kind of keeps me going even now. Um, for example, in Bwindi, um, the year after I started, there was an infant named Muchiza who was born, and he's now the dominant silverback of a group. He has mm -hmm. he has five lady friends. He has four infants of his own, and just to think that I've been privileged enough to watch him grow up um, from being an infant. And with males, you never know if they're gonna be make it to be right. dominant or not. And um, yeah, so and I have to say, there is a bit I go out and see him, and I'm like, you. There's part of me that still says you're just a kid. <laughs> you you do have an interesting uh, family, don't you? I mean, when you think uh, about you know over these thirty years to have all these relationships and and connections. So you're heading back tomorrow to Gabon and mm -hmm. down to Luongo, right? Yes. To, to kind of get this started, maybe talk about the difference because Bowindi looks and feels very different than uh, being up at Karasoki in the Barungas. So maybe compare and contrast not only those places, but is there a difference in the gorillas that are there and how they behave because of that landscape? Yeah, so there are only two populations of mountain gorillas. The Virunga volcanoes, which is where um, Karasoki is and where Fossey worked, and then Bwindi Impenetrable National Park in Uganda. They're very close. They're only about 30 kilometers away from each other. So whatever, call it 20 miles. But there's a very big difference in altitude. So the Barungas are known for being very high altitude. For example, Karasoki's at about 10,000 feet in elevation. Um, and Bwindi, the highest part of Bwindi is only 7,500 feet. So you have, with that big altitudinal difference, you have big differences in habitat. I mean, just think about climbing mountains anywhere and you go through different vegetation zones as you go higher. Um, so what this means is the plants are different. Um, so what they eat is different and 
they how they use the habitats a little bit different. A lot of their behavior is quite similar. Again, they the type of social groups that they live in. But one of the most fascinating differences, and this took years to figure out, is that the time interval between births for females in in the Barungas is four years. So a female will have one baby, she nurses it, boom, and then her next kid comes along four years later. Well, in Bwindi, that interval is five years. So even between these two populations that are very close, there's this big difference in how frequently they have, have babies. That has big implications for the ability of, of each population to grow. Um, you know, you have babies more frequently, and it means the you're going to get higher population growth. Do we know a reason for that? Why, why there's no. that year difference? <laughs> we, oh, okay. We're not sure. Um, I think it probably has something to do with the food they're eating and the availability. So kind of like energetics. Um, and so just the Wendy girls have to work a little bit harder to get a certain number of calories per day, um, whereas the Virunga gorillas, they, they travel very little. Um, they may only move about half a kilometer or three quarters of a kilometer a day. Um, the Bwindi girls move a little bit further. Another huge difference is the Bwindi girls eat fruit. There's, again, in the high altitude forests of the Virungas, there's not much fruit there that the gorillas would eat. And the Bwindi gorillas spend about 15% of their time, feeding time, eating fruit. And they, they love it. You know, it's, it's full of sugar. <laughs> right. um, so they do travel further to get this fruit as well. Um, so again, the difference, these differences in inner birth interval and so forth, it, it probably is related to diet somehow. And speaking of that, that, uh, that difference in, in diet, let's, let's, uh, let's jump over to the other group of gorillas, because that was going to be one of the questions that I had to you, like the difference between mountain gorillas and Western lowlands. In terms of your work on Western lowlands, how would you compare and contrast mountains and, and Western lowlands? A rose is a rose is a rose, but a gorilla is not a gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a gorilla. Um, they are a different species. And um, so they, they are still gorillas, but they're different in many ways. I mean, physically, if you look, the biggest, most obvious thing is that Western lowland gorillas, their hair is much shorter. Um, they tend to have more red on the head. They, they just look a bit leaner because the mountain gorillas, they live in this cold environment. So they're wearing big furry gorilla suits. Um, but in addition to that, just living the, again, the habit, one, it's flat, which makes walking around for us a bit easier. Being a tropical forest, there's even more fruit. Um, so the Western lowland gorillas, their diet's about 30% fruit. So again, just, just in terms of diet, again, the, the Virunga gorillas, they, they have almost no fruit. Windy, it's about 15%. And then Western gorillas, it's up to about 30 or so. So that, that's kind of one of the most obvious differences ecologically. Does that affect them in terms of their group structure, um, in terms of just their, their, I mean, obviously their motivation to move is, is there to cover a, a bigger range to get to fruit and other foods, but does it also, does that movement then impact um, the, the group structure? Because I know like with, 
with the mountain gorillas, as, as you alluded to a minute ago in the Virungas, I mean, they don't move around very much. You know, it's basically sit in a salad bowl and eat all day long. Yeah, exactly. They sit around and eat broccoli all day, broccoli and spinach <laughs> all day long. Also with the West, with the lowland gorillas, there's a lot more fruit, but there's actually less of that salad bowl stuff. Um, mm. the, the, the understory of the forest is very open. And so what this means is the Western gorillas, they do move a lot further every day. So two kilometers, even four kilometers, um, they mature later than mountain gorillas do. Um, so in all likelihood, they, they just have a slower time to development because of these, what we would call ecological constraints. Um, yeah, okay, sorry. And your question was about the group structure. So right. the classic, the classic gorilla group is a, is a one male group. So one silverback and some adult females and, and the kids. So before I, when I was getting ready to, to go study gorillas for the first time, you know, this is what all the books say. Um, and then I got to Karasoki and there were, there were all these groups with more than one silverback in them. <laughs> I was like, they didn't read the books. Something, something's not right. It turns out that mountain gorillas, both in the Virungas and then also in Bwindi, about 40 to 50% of the groups have more than one silverback in them. And so this is, this is one of the biggest differences in the group structure. Um, whereas in Western gorillas, they are almost exclusively one male groups. And in terms of why this is, we think it may be, again, the habitat for mountain gorillas may enable, may allow for groups to get a bit bigger. So some males just stick around at home. <laughs> Okay. And then they, they either wait for the dominant male to die or they, they usurp him. So it's kind of a different way to become a dominant male in mountain gorillas. Again, some of them do leave the group where they're born and then, and then form their own, their own groups. But a lot of them stay, stay where they are and then take over or become dominant that way. Yeah, I, I remember um, when I first started working up at Karasoki, Ziz, as you mentioned earlier, was... Yeah. Was was the big boy on the block, and I mean he was he was huge too, but there was right right coming along was Pablo, and who was we we jokingly would call a silver dollar back. It was just that little patch of silver was coming <laughs> coming around, and and it, it was interesting the temperament too is having two uh, in two big males in a group like that. Ziz seemed so mellow, and Pablo was always acting up. It's like that testosterone had to find some outlet. And I wanted to ask you about that because the juveniles are that much more active at a much earlier age, it seemed, um, where mountain gorillas, for example, the, the babies just seem to, they sit around like the adults do a lot more. There's, they play, of course, but they play within a, a very small range where it seemed like the young uh, Western lowlands that I've seen, they just seem far more active climbing and just, you know, acting out with, with, um, in, in terms of being just much more physical. It's like they're in a jungle gym all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, we're collecting data, so we'll be able to like really quantify and compare play behavior. And they, the kids on both species, they can be extremely boisterous. My rather non-scientific theory is that with Western gorillas, the forest floor is open. Whereas with mountain gorillas, they're very rarely actually touching the ground. There's so much vegetation mm -hmm. and, and they're often on that. And I think when you're a tiny little one or two year old gorilla and you're, you're constantly trying to walk on vegetation, I think it's much harder. 
Whereas if you're on a flat surface, I, I think just simply the forest structure enables the Western gorillas to, to be a bit mo more mobile, even when they're very little. Um, and again, we'll, we'll be able to test this in a little bit, but Western gorillas, they, they spend a lot more time in the trees. Um, again, most of that's because they're up there eating fruit. They eat leaves from some of the trees. And so in a way it would, it makes sense that they kind of need to practice this a bit more, even starting out when they're very little. Yeah, that was one thing that I, I have noticed in working in, you know, Western Congo and that direction on Western lowland gorillas that they just, the amount that they climb. I've seen gorillas just literally go straight up. It looked like a telephone pole. They just, boom, they go straight up that thing where mountain gorillas, as they seem to get bigger, far less, um, especially big silverbacks and things, far less climbing about. The, the Bwindi gorillas climb. Um, again, they, I, I think it almost follows how, how frugivorous they are. Um, they're definitely more, it's called arboreal being in the, in the trees. Um, they definitely more are, they, they spend a lot more time higher up than the ones in the Virungas. These huge 300 pound silverbacks can just get mm -hmm. 60 feet up a tree in a matter of minutes. Um, I mean, their arms are much stronger than our, ours, so they're, they're well designed for it. But yeah, they're, they, if they want to, they can climb. I just think the, the mountain gorillas that live in the Virungas, they don't really have reason to climb, so they, they sit around yeah. in their salad bowl. <laughs> No, that, that makes total sense. So on a trip like you're about to do, um, how long will you be down there and, and what kinds of things will you be doing? So I'll be gone for about a month. First thing I do when I arrive is I will get tested for COVID. Um, okay. I got tested yesterday and I'll get a test again when I get there. Um, and then on Monday and Tuesday, I have meetings with government officials. Um, we work very, the project, we have a very strong collaboration with the Gabonese Park Service. Um, so in terms of just having some meetings there, then I will quarantine for a bit because of COVID. Um, mm. We're very, very concerned about the transmission, potential transmission of COVID from us to the gorillas. Fortunately, the incidence of COVID is very low in Gabon right now. Um, and then I will finally get in the, be able to get in the forest and see the gorillas. <laughs> a lot of what I'll be doing is checking up on my staff. Um, we have a I have an established data collection protocol there. And in terms of, of, you know, answering questions, seeing how things are going, giving feedback, um, telling people, thank you for walking through swamps on a regular basis to watch these gorillas. <laughs> and then in Gabon, we, so we have one group of gorillas that's habituated. We had a new baby born last month. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing the, the new one. <laughs> that will be um, exciting, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's always fun. And then um, we're habituating a second group. Um, we started habituating this group about, let's say about a year and a half ago. So just in terms of going out and, and again, assessing where we are with the habituation process there, because just in terms of the sustainability of the project and making sure that, that we have more than one group. And then otherwise, <laughs> I'm just going to enjoy being out in the forest and, and just hanging out with the gorillas. <laughs> I bet. I bet. And Gabon is really nice this time of year, too. It's it's kind of um, when I was there, I was there in August and early September. I think it would surprise people. You're right on the equator um, or very close to the equator. And yet it was far more pleasant than it was here in North America. So um, I, I want to talk about the environment just a little bit that you're going to. And and then I'd love to get back to the to a, a minute about COVID. First of all, how big is your team that you have? 
in Longo? Um, at any time, we, we have about 15 people there at any time. With the habituated group, we, we send a team out in the morning and then we have another team go out in the afternoon, just kind of stagger it because we leave camp about seven in the morning and then they stay out in the forest till about five. Sometimes we, we do all day, but it, it's a lot to do day after day after day. And then again, we're habituating the second group. And then we, we have some other activities, like once a month, we go and look at certain trees to see whether they're fruiting or not. And then we have some um, camera traps out where we can collect videos remotely, sensor camera traps, and get, get a sense of what other gorilla groups are in the area. Um, so yeah, it's about, it's about 15 people in general. Just in description-wise, maybe um, a little better description of what the habitat there is like, because it is very different from what pe most people, I think, see when they see gorillas because they see mountain gorillas. Yeah, this may sound a little bit funny, but I, I think for people to relate a bit, to say that it's kind of like an open forest in North America may not be too far, but then put in 90% humidity and a lot of bugs, a lot of insects, um, and, and, and higher trees, taller trees for sure. But the understory, so when you're walking, it's much more open. And Luongo is an extremely open lowland forest. Um, and then the other very special thing about Luongo is we have a lot of swamps. Rarely does a day go by that, that we're not walking through a swamp. And in the beginning, when, we, when the project started and the gorillas would cross a swamp, I just thought, okay, they're crossing the swamp. And then reality set in that the swamps, they like the swamps. They feed in the swamps. And so I like the swamps now too, even when I get worms <laughs> in my feet in the swamps. <laughs> yeah, swamps in the tropics are a little different than swamps at other places. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. let's just say lots of animals like elephants and buffalo go in the swamps. <laughs> yeah. And, and they can move a lot more efficiently than we can in those swamps. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I uh, when I was uh, last in Gabon, I was just north of you a little bit uh, okay. near Fernabaz area, and oh, yeah. okay. and we went out um, tracking. We were hoping to find gorillas, um, but we did encounter some some wild chimps. But probably one of the most difficult parts of it was it had rained a fair bit, and the elephants had gone through, and they made these like meter deep, three foot deep holes from their legs. And cleverly, the gorilla traps and the chimp traps were all in between the legs, but we weren't that smart. So we kept going into the holes and then you'd have to pull each other out of there. And it was, it, it was- I call those elephant potholes. <laughs> <laughs> they were serious elephant potholes. Yeah, and I, I just realized how, yeah, how much appreciation I have for what you and your team do because it's it's not always easy. You must be really happy. Well, thank you. It's, it, there's that little space where you can cut through to the beach um, on the other side of, of the park. And it, I don't know, have you seen gorillas out there on the beach? When the project started, um, <laughs> one of the reasons the project was set up there was because there were stories of gorillas on the beach, but they don't use the beach that much. So the, the dream of the beach gorillas turned into the reality of the swamp gorillas. <laughs> um, but I will say I have seen, I have seen gorillas um, while on the beach and it was one of the strangest, ex kind of just strange experiences I had. Um, 
Uh, it was mixed with the fact that it was, it was at the end of the day, I had just taken a bush bath, shower, whatever. So I literally was like wrapped in a towel <laughs> oh my God. And, and heard some noise on the, in the trees right on the edge of the forest by the beach. And I looked and I was like, wait a minute, that's, that's gorillas. And, and again, this was in like the first two weeks of the project. So these were completely wild gorillas. And, um, you know, at that point I'd kind of switched from, you know, my work day had kind of ended. Um, so it was, it had to be one of the strangest experience I've had seeing gorillas. Um, wow. and yeah, I managed to not drop my towel. <laughs> um that i i just i mean yeah I, it would be a really you know huge treat to see them out there just because it it would be such a bizarre location situation i i made one trip out out to the beach and and didn't see um saw some bush pigs close and saw tracks of hippos and elephants and things yeah. and a lot of elephant dung and things so and i've uh, seen obviously seen footage of hippos surfing and all of that but to see gorillas this endless white beach that just goes all the way down the coastline there and um so and and virtually no one around i mean you, yeah you, it's you, a very you, special place and... you your towel and the gorillas were probably all that was there <laughs> so <laughs> yeah and then a few of my team they probably were oh. they probably were more surprised to see me though but... mm. In terms of, I mean, all of these long studies that you've done, if there were, if, if you were sitting down and having dinner with somebody who had never seen a gorilla, let's say, or really did, they they thought they'd seen a gorilla, but they really didn't know anything about them, and they said, "Why in the world have you spent all these years?" Like, what would you describe to them is is so special about gorillas? Uh, a few years ago, my father said to me, "He's like, don't don't we know enough about gorillas yet?" <laughs> Um, which I think, you know, as a daughter, I rolled my eyes, but at the same time, you know, it, it was, it, it's a totally valid question. And again, I think one thing that keeps me going is we, we do keep learning new things. I guess you can look at that in two ways. One, again, in terms of time and gorillas are very long lived animals. So for example, we still don't really know what the average lifespan of gorillas are. We, we have a few, you know, some that we know for sure live to their late thirties or early forties, but in terms of really understanding their lifespan, that's going to go beyond my career to figure that one out. Um, and also again, differences between the different populations and species. And then another thing is a lot of research builds on other research. So maybe we understand a little bit about their diet and their social behavior, but we mm -hmm. need more time to do this. One, one little anecdote that really strikes me is, is when I started out in Bwindi, the two top ranking females, so Binyendo and Siatu, they didn't really, they just kind of put up with each other. And, but again, gorillas, they travel around as a group all the time. So they probably were never more than a few hundred yards apart from each other for at least 18 years. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. So like, that's how social they are. Um, and I mean, there was more than one dominant silverback that time. And then interestingly, after 18 years together, they both transferred to another male, to a wild silverback, and they went together, but they hmm. never groomed each other. They didn't really hang out. But, you know, and, you know, for 
if you said you were friends with somebody else for 18 years, people would say, oh, wow, that's a long time. I mean, that, you, don't, you don't want to spend a few hundred meters for 18 years with your spouse. You know? um, so just, just in terms of, of how social they are and, and what we can learn about sociality from other animals, including gorillas, I think is really fascinating. Maybe they're telepathic. Maybe there's something going on that, you know, we'll have to wait till there's a new, a new technology there to figure out. But, um, yeah, no, that's, that's incredible. You know, what's exciting about what you just said also is you said, you know, they'll, they'll go, this will go on beyond your lifetime. And that's, that's got it for, for any little girls out there who are listening to this. Um, that's, um, that's got to be exciting. There is room. A lot of times, you sort of think, okay, there was the Diane Fossey, there was the Jane Goodall, and the Bruti Galdikas out there and did their studies, and now there's nothing to learn. And that was part of the reason I was so excited about having, having you share your experiences with us. There is so much more to learn, and there's going to be decades more uh, that we have to learn. So if you're you know, 8, 10, 12-year-old little girl out there and wanting to become a primatologist and do gorilla research, there's, there's plenty to do and plenty of swamps to walk around in. And follow your dreams. I know, I know people say that all the time, but, but, but it's true. <laughs> Just uh, quickly, because I know people will have this question uh, about COVID. A lot of the parks, um, Bowindi, other places had shut down um, out of, I don't think it was an abundance of caution. I mean, we know great apes and, and gorillas in particular can catch um, you know, respiratory diseases and they can become very fatal. Can just talk a little bit about that and, and some of the procedures you go through and not just with COVID, but maybe some of the other things mm -hmm. that you do, even when there isn't COVID around, but you do to protect yourselves and protect uh, the gorillas. We, we are very susceptible to respiratory diseases. I've, even before COVID, you know, everybody gets a cold once a year, people get the flu, but we recover from it very quickly. Um, we're used to being exposed to these things and our immune systems are built up. I mean, obviously people, you know, people can get the flu and get quite sick. And again, this is the thing about COVID is that we don't have it, it's new, so we don't have any immunity to it. Well, for the gorillas, common colds and common respiratory things, those are all a little bit like COVID in that they haven't been exposed to them. So they don't have the immunity for it. And so they, they tend to, re, they, they can get very, very sick very quickly. And also they can't just go down to the pharmacy or to Walgreens and, and get some, you know, get some medicine or, or, or just lay in bed for three days. That's, that's not what gorillas do. The risk of disease is one of the biggest threats to gorillas um, and particularly respiratory diseases. Um, at both of my projects, we've been wearing masks for years, you know, the whole thing of masking up, um, is, is, is nothing new in terms of making sure that like the last thing I want to do is, is get these gorillas sick. And so, for example, in Bwindi, they, the, the, the Uganda Wildlife Authority, the park service, they stopped, they stopped tourism and they stopped all grade eight research in March. They just recently restarted tourism, but they haven't started research yet. 
Um, mm -hmm. And the park rangers are going out to the gorillas every day, but they're not getting as close. They just go out, they check and say, ah, oh, yeah, there's the silverback, you know, there's Jane, there's Sue, there's, you know, and then, and then they, they pull back. It, it is on a, from a scientist point of view, it, it is, it's disappointing for me that I've had to have my research stop for a while, the data collection, because a lot of what we're doing now is developmental studies, but not a single piece of data that I could collect is as important as making sure these gorillas are healthy and survive. And, and even today, I learned that there are some positive COVID cases in towns that are not that far away from Windy. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's really important that, and the, the Park Service has a very strict protocol in place in terms of having their staff quarantine and, you know, not, not be mixing with, um, not be going to the village and that kind of thing. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a big, big concern. And on top of that, the fact that in, in terms of it getting into the local communities, the health services for people there are very, very weak. So just in terms of the potential human costs, it's, it's really, really worrying. This kind of leads me to a, a, another question, which is you were one of the first people I, I read or heard talking about something called extreme conservation. Um, I, I don't know. I see it pop up from time to time. The, uh, maybe you could explain a little bit about it. And the, part of the reason that I, I bring it up is you mentioned the tourists. And I wanted to ask your thoughts on, you know, this is, especially with mountain gorillas, this has been sort of kicked around over the, the years about tourists wearing masks when, mm -hmm. they, when they go up and they visit the gorillas. Um, you know, they're supposed to be a seven meter, 22, 23 foot distance kept. I know from my own work there, and I know also from leading groups, that that, that distance gets fudged. Um, obviously, you can't control, a, you know, a silverback running at you and going by you and grabbing mm -hmm. a leg. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure on park staff and guides and things to, to get somebody the best picture possible or get them that closer look at a baby or something. So just your your thoughts on, especially since you're, you're habituating in, in Gabon, you're habituating groups. And um, I assume those are some of those are going to be open to tourists or they are open to tourists yeah. yeah so yeah so i guess i'll start with the tourism um tourism has been a key thing a, a key reason why we still have mountain gorillas they again they they live in just these two small isolated populations they're the only great ape subspecies that we know of that has is increasing where the the number of mountain gorillas is essentially doubled in the last two to three decades, which is remarkable. And again, part of that is because of the, the economics of tourism. And for example, in 2019, there probably were close to 50,000 people that went to visit mountain gorillas. And again, getting within, you know, five to 10 meters of them. And like, can you imagine having eight strangers come in your living room every day and, and, and watch you for an hour? Yeah. <laughs> so- yeah. So what I like to say is, you know, gorillas are really big, but we're putting a lot of weight on their shoulders mm. and like a lot of responsibility on their shoulders for them to carry their 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 weight in terms of their conservation. And this gives this gives the governments, this gives the local communities a lot of incentive to protect them. They also definitely value the gorillas in, as part of their natural heritage and and just globally realizing 
that these three countries, that's the only place that there are mountain gorillas and that, you know, those countries consider it, recognize how special that is. But again, tourism will only work if it's done responsibly. So again, in terms of the guide, the rules that are in place, that it is just one visit per day for an hour. And so again, there, there's been a, you know, the girls have gotten a vacation with COVID because tourism was stopped for six months. And I think if there's any silver lining that comes out of COVID is that I think masks, mask wearing by the tourists will become a permanent requirement. I, I mean, ultimately, that's up to the a decision of the governments. But I, I know that that is, you know, that that is being discussed. And I think that will be really good. I mean, again, as researchers, we've been wearing them for years now. The gorillas don't care. You know, we're just we just people with funny white blobs on our face, you know. Was that enough about tourism? Yeah, yeah, I guess. Because, but I would like to extend it just a, a minute because do you think in the, in the same way that mountain gorillas are only in these three countries, the Western lowlands are kind of in an isolated area as well. I mean, they're in Gabon and Cameroon, um, Republic of Congo, that, that basin right there in Western, Con Western Congo Basin. And, but yet they aren't valued in the same way. I mean, poaching still exists uh, over there. You've got you yeah. know, huge amounts of habitat lost, uh, logging and, and, and now palm oil coming back to the Congo Basin. Do you foresee an opportunity for um, ecotourism around gorillas sort of mirroring what's happened in, in the Barungas and Buendi? I think it's possible. And the, the project in Gabon, we, we've had tourists coming since 2016. In, in a three and a half year period, we had in total, we had about 800 people come to the one group. Uh, there, there's a lot in terms of tourism development. And, and for example, Uganda, you can do a nice circuit and go to a variety of, of different parks. And in Gabon, I mean, one of the nice things about Luongo is it is accessible. It's about a day's trip from the capital. Um, and again, you can go to the beach, see elephants, hippos or whatever. So I think it's possible. But again, it's sort of a, you know, tourism everywhere right now is kind of hitting, you know, got to right. update the reset button. So I, I think it is possible. And that is one of the reasons in Gabon where we've, we've intertwined the tourism and research from, from the very beginning. Um, and again, in terms of making sure it's done responsibly, but in terms of getting to that scale where, you know, the number of people we had come see the gorillas in 2019 in Gabon is, you know, in, in Bwindi, more people saw them in a week <laughs> than, yeah, right. than in, in, you know, in, in, in a year. Um, it's a different experience too. I mean, the forest is really different. Um, and for me, like, I think right now for people that are going to see Western girls, it, it's a bit more of the wild west too. <laughs> Just the, the forest has much more, I think of, you know, that tropical, um, feel to it. And, and I think for true ape, you know, ape lovers or ape aficionados, Going to see both Western gorillas and mountain gorillas, it, they're, they're really different experiences. Um, and in terms of really seeing them in their habitats, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I know we, um, you know, prior to uh, COVID, we were looking at from the Globio, our, our parent NGO, we were looking at our travel program and we do Uganda and Rwanda and, and um, look at chimps and gorillas both there and then some things in Borneo and we were looking at what was the next step and Gabon was one of them and in coming down to where where you are that was you know that's one of the challenges is the infrastructure um, there yeah. as you've mentioned there's there's no real circuits so we were looking at how do we develop 
a circuit of things. It's a spectacular part of the world. I mean, it, you know, I've heard people even mention Gabon in, in sort of saying the Costa Rica of Africa, because it's got this opportunity to be, a, you know, a real mecca for, for seeing wildlife, especially seeing wildlife now um, in, in the next decade or so, where it's still a very wild place. So it takes, you have to be a, a, a little bit hardier tourist, I think, to, to want to experience it there. You, you have to be hardier. And I think, I think you know, the, perspect, the, the prospects are there to make it a Costa Rica. But again, it, it's a bit of a critical mass thing. And in terms of it becoming profitable, there was a day I saw elephants, chimpanzees, and dolphins on the same day. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And so that's why you keep going back, isn't it? It's like that kind of experience. I just, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. But yeah. every day, every day there's something different. You know, it can be a pretty butterfly. It can be, you know, it can be anything. It can be standing in the rain for three hours, you know. But obviously the gorillas. Yeah. Obviously, the girls. Hey, we only have a couple minutes left, and because I also, you probably have some more packing and organizing to do before you, you jump on a plane. We've been talking with Dr. Martha Robbins from the Max Planck for Evolutionary Anthropology Department, and she's about to jump on a plane tomorrow morning to fly back to Gabon and do more research on Western lowland gorillas. So it's been really exciting to have her here on World Gorilla Day to talk to us about her experiences over the last 30 years and what that all means. I did have one more question I wanted to ask you, and I've written it down here somewhere there. If you had to say there was one challenge over that 30 years, what, what, do you, what would you say was your your greatest challenge, um, and it may not even be with gorillas, but what was your, your single greatest challenge, you, would you say, over the last 30 years? I, I, maybe if I can turn that into the question of what the great, and being World Gorilla Day, what is the greatest challenge for the gorillas? Okay, and in, in terms of, of their conservation, helping people understand that no matter where they live, you know, there are ways that all of us can make a difference to help gorillas and to help all the other animals living in the forest. And, you know, a lot of the issues are on a local scale, but national and then then international as well. And I, I, I do think now with COVID where, you know, tourism has stopped, which was a big thing, you know, it's giving all us a bit pause about local versus national. But, um, and just with so many things going on in the world right now, we, we can't forget these endangered species. And, you know, they could be gone very, very quickly. And, you know, I, knowing that the number of mount gorillas has doubled in the last three decades, but that's still, that's only a thousand. You know, if you went to a multi, if you went to a multiplex cinema on a busy weekend, there would be a thousand people there. You know, that, that's like all the mount gorillas we have. So yeah, that's it. And then for personal, I, I don't know. I, I think it's something where the challenges you, you have to, you have to kind of twist them around. I mean, you know, standing in the rain, worms in the feet, customs officials, <laughs> how do I get, you know, salt tomorrow? I've got solar panels and you name it. I got over a hundred pounds of stuff, but you know, that's part of, and, and again, where you turn the, the adversity into adventure, I guess is part of it. And I do my fair share of complaining, don't get me wrong, but, um, yeah, I mean, getting older, it doesn't get any easier, but it's, you know, I, I just consider myself so fortunate to having been able to do what I do. And I do feel, you know, 
I feel responsibility for trying to be a spokesperson for the gorillas as well. And, and I also feel responsibility that the, the, the gorillas that we've habituated, they have led us into their lives and helped, you know, enabled us to, to learn so much about them. You know, it, it's, it's just fascinating. And even after many, many years, and I'm still out there watching gorillas eat, but there are plenty of new things. Yeah. That was a kind of wambly answer, but... <laughs> no, that, that, that does it. And, and when you said all the things you've seen, I just, as, as a, you know, a filmmaker and cameraman and stuff, I just, I wish I could download all those images onto 4K because what you have seen is, God, it, I, I can't even, I mean, I, I've certainly gotten to see a lot of gorillas, but I can't even fathom what you've gotten to see over the years. And so I, I just thank you so much for, for sharing it with us today. Martha, safe travels um, back to Gabon. Stay in touch. Let us know uh, any amazing things you see and discover or worms you find in your feet or anything else that goes on down there. <laughs> so um, anyway, we, we need, I, I want to do this again sometime. Hopefully yeah. um, we can catch yeah. up with you in the field in Longo and we can film something there and maybe figure out a way to even do one of these live from there sometime. That would be brilliant. I was thinking about that earlier. We, we could try that for sure. That would be, yeah, that would be great be cool. fun. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Robbins for taking the time out. I know she was packing and getting ready to head off for Gabon, but I thank her a great deal for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to Talking Apes, where each episode we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach, with passionate primate people, and conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the forefront of what's happening to our wild ape cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our website at www.globio.org backslash Talking Apes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes or ideas for future podcasts, you can always email us at media at globio.org. I'd like to thank Talking Apes producer Meg Stark for all of her hard work behind the scenes and putting together another great episode. And finally, I'd like to thank you. Your support gives apes a voice. Help share their voice by making a tax-deductible donation to Globio.org. And until next time, I'm Jerry Ellis, and you've been listening to Talking Apes.